Good morning once again. Welcome to Christ Church, a church about lifting lives, elevating Christ to church. For those who aren't here yet, I'm Pastor Andrew. I'm glad that you're here now, joining us on site, joining us online this morning. Thanks for tuning in and being part of Christ Church, our worshiping community today. We're deep into a sermon series that's kind of carried us all summer long. Uh, the sermon series has been titled, The Top Ten Most Googled Psalms. We've been looking at Psalms. Psalms is one of the books of the Bible. And we've been intentional about looking into the book of Psalms because we want to recognize and see and understand who God is and what God is up to in the world. We frame this within the context of Google, saying that, yeah, it's true, Google is really helpful. Google is very helpful in our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. But if you're searching for answers, say bigger kind of answers, answers about who God is, what it means to be part of God's people, answers about Jesus, there are probably better places to go than simply throwing it in Google. We as a Christian people make the case that the Bible is the best place that we can go. That when we are in the context of community together, opening God's word up, we get a much better understanding of who God is. So that's what we've been doing, opening up the scriptures and specifically diving into the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms itself is one book of many books inside of the Bible. The Bible, although it has one binding, is actually a collection of books. And the book of Psalms itself is a collection within a collection, an anthology. It's a collection that has a whole smattering of different poems and songs and different feel throughout its various texts. Some of the songs are intentionally put to music. The psalms are put to music and therefore are hymns or songs. Some of them are uh, psalms that cover thanksgiving and celebration, have a feeling and an attitude of uh, joy and wonder to them. Other psalms capture a little bit more of an ethos that has lament or challenge or difficulty to them. That's part of the beauty of the book of Psalms is that you get the whole spectrum of the human experience. Everything that you have gone through, there's probably some psalm in here that could speak into it. Another big important thing when you think about the Psalms is that, we've talked about this, one of the important pieces is there are certain heroes of the Psalms. One of the most significant ones is a guy named King David. Today is no different. King David features very prominently in today's Psalm as we are going to actually examine the significance of the Psalm related to King David's own life. King David is a fabulous, incredible figure in Jewish theology, in Jewish history that continues to be important to this very modern day. If you go to modern day Israel as an example, King David is a really big figure. David continues to speak to us, and his story can help inform us when it comes to the Psalms. Today, Psalm 51 is all about David. As I open up the Bible, what I've been trying to do is actually read the Psalms to you in worship. Uh, it's part of ancient practice. Christians have done this literally for, for thousands of years, is to read Scripture together, out loud together. Um, but as I begin to read Psalm 51, you're going to find that we're not going to go very far before we need to stop and get a little context. In fact, I can pretty much read the header to you, and then we need to stop. Here's the header to Psalm 51. For the choir director, a psalm of David regarding the time Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Yes, it's that psalm. For those of you who know Psalm 51, this is a more complex story that is really important we spend time examining. There is context 
to Psalm 51. So before we actually jump into the psalm, we have to go to the backstory of what's going on with the psalm and why the psalm was written. That includes us looking at a very curious cast of colorful characters. Say that ten times fast. But it is a very, very interesting group of people who stumble along and make decisions. Here are the people. First off, you got King David. And David, he's king. It's good to be king. He is about 50, 60 years old right now. When he was young, he fought his way up through the ranks. He was a rising star, kind of a Robin Hood kind of figure, and really uh, got the, the people to love and respect him. And eventually he becomes king, reigns as the king, very successful king, and now he's kind of coming in on the sunset years, feeling good. You see, he's getting to that point now where he doesn't fight battles anymore. He has other people fight battles for him. So when springtime came along, normally that's the time a king would launch a campaign, he ends up getting his generals together and all the men of the town together, and he says, look, go fight my battles for me, and he sends them off on a road trip to go fight some wars. That leaves David alone in his palace. So life's good for the king. David's hanging out, feeling a little lonely, but whatever. He has a morning breakfast, goes for a light jog maybe, gets his day routine. Uh, in the afternoon, he takes a nap, takes a little siesta, a little relaxation. And then to stretch his legs, David makes the decision to go up on the rooftop terrace of his palace and, and look at the city and just drink in the, the grandeur of Jerusalem and have a cup of tea. While he's up there observing the beauty of his city, he catches another beauty's eye. There's another beauty on a nearby rooftop. For some odd reason, it appears that some outdoor showers were fashionable in the day because there's a woman named Bathsheba who happens to be bathing on a nearby rooftop terrace. David's king. It's good to be king sometimes. So he calls his servants over and he says, Who is that? I want to invite her over for dinner. Well, she comes over for dinner, and she stays the night. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And all that comes was staying the night. She wakes up the next morning. She goes back home. Bathsheba sends a messenger to David because now she has an upset tummy. Turns out she's pregnant. David, all of a sudden, feels really nervous about this. He's got a court scandal on his hands. And the reason why it's such a scandal is because Bathsheba's married to Uriah the Hittite, who happens to be one of the guys David sent off to fight his war. Yes, that's right. Uriah's on the front lines fighting for King David, and David just slept with his wife. Whoops! Not a good move. Are you keeping track of the number of commandments we're breaking right now, by the way, of the Ten Commandments? It's at least half the Ten Commandments by the time we're done with all this. Uriah the Hittite is the problem. So David, through some crafty negotiation, decides on a way to get rid of the problem. Get rid of Uriah. It's that simple. No Uriah, no scandal, no worries. So David tells his generals to pull back from Uriah and have Uriah get caught in a terrible battle and killed. The plan actually works. An arrow catches Uriah, Uriah dies, and David thinks he's clear and free. He's done it. The scandal is covered up. Doesn't have to worry anymore. Feeling good. Nobody knows. Except, except that David has had one other person in his life from the very beginning who's been there watching over David, taking care of David, walking beside David. And that person is the person of God. God has been there all the way through David's life, watching and caring for him. And he was most certainly watching during this episode. So God gets a hold of his local prophet, 
The guy's name's Nathan. Wiry old guy, Nathan. And Nathan's job as the prophet is kind of a tough one. He's got to go have a confrontation with the King David. So he shows up at the palace and starts giving a word to King David. He tells him a story. He says, King David, I got a story for you. There was a man who was poor, but he managed to buy a little lamb. He took care of this little ewe lamb. He loved this lamb, fed it scraps from his table. He used to bring it into his bed at night to keep it warm. He adored and cherished and loved this little lamb. Then a powerful, rich, and wealthy man from outside of town came to town, stayed with the poor man. The rich and powerful man grew hungry, his appetite unsatiated, and he decided he wanted to eat. And so they butchered the little lamb. He's telling David this story, and David gets kind of upset at this point, stands up and says, No, injustice, terrible, evil in the sight of the Lord. This is horrible. This is wretched. That evil, powerful, wealthy man has done wrong to the poor and the innocent. At this point in time, you know that Nathan got him. Like, Nathan got them, you know? You can just picture wiry old Nathan pointing a wiry, gnarly finger out towards David, and he says, David, you are the man. Come on, nobody likes my voice or anything. I'm working here, people. I think it's pretty good. Yeah, you can picture a little, you know. He's got the big beard. He's got the bug eyes and the gnarly hand. And he's pointing. And it's at David, the king. The reality here is that David, the king, through a course of decisions and actions, is the man who has sinned, who has lived into his brokenness, who has made some serious mistakes that have ripple effects in his life and in the lives of others to the point of killing someone. There is now grief and pain and hurt that David has welcomed into his life, into the lives of others, and even into his kingdom as a whole. The consequences to these decisions are rather significant as David has to now deal with. There is a child involved and Nathan, the prophet, says, look, the same brokenness and the pain and the hurt that you've introduced into your life is now going to be passed on to your child. It will manifest itself in a sickness and in a disease. And when the child is born, sure enough, the child is born sick and ill. And the child will die. Nathan says. David fasts. He refuses to eat. He refuses to shower. He refuses to bathe and clean himself. He doesn't eat any food. He barely sleeps. He's dealing with grief and he's praying day in and day out and asking that God would rescue his baby boy. Sadly, the child dies. Part of the consequence, the reality of sin in our world is death and the child dies upon the death of the child David does something rather interesting something that we don't expect something that is catches us as those listening to the story by surprise he calls his servants in and he asks them to draw a bath for himself bring him fresh clothes and food to eat he cleans himself he shaves himself he bathes and eats and nourishes his body Having cleaned himself, the first significant thing David does is go to church. 
David goes to the Jewish temple. He runs to the Jewish temple, and there at the Jewish temple, he falls on his knees and begins practicing the act of worship. He begins praying and singing and worshiping God in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his grief, with the reality of his own brokenness. David turns to God. And it is here, on his knees, we believe that he wrote and said Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me with wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from Your presence. Don't take Your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of Your salvation and make me willing to obey You. Then I will teach Your ways to rebels and they will return to You. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves, and I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire sacrifice, or I would offer one. The sacrifice that you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Look with favor on Zion and help her. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will again be sacrificed on your altar. For many people, they approach Psalm 51 and the story behind Psalm 51 as seeing the weightiness of sin and pain and brokenness. And it's totally true. This is definitely a psalm and a story that's messy. Yes? <laughs> Absolutely. But for as much as this story has sin and pain and mistakes, judgment and brokenness, it is actually also a story of forgiveness and healing and restoration. It's a story about asking and seeking God to set things right. 
when we've made a mess of things. This is a story that is actually less about sinfulness and more about rightness. The fancy word that Christians would use is righteousness. About the right way in which God hoped and ordained and believed the world could be. This is a story that threading throughout it and therefore also threading throughout the psalm is a psalm about God setting things right when people, David, can't seem to set things right himself. David goes so far as to talk about the the pain and the suffering that he's experiencing. He, he, He names the reality that the decisions he made, the baggage that he carries, the pain and brokenness, it haunts him. Uh, Make no mistake, in this world, we are most certainly perpetrators of of pain and brokenness. But we are also victims of it. And we carry it around in ourselves and in our hearts and in our minds and our spirits. And, And like David, it so often haunts us. In fact, some of us carry so much baggage and so much pain and so much hurt that it extends back well into our past, well into days long gone by, and yet it still haunts us, our brokenness. Our brokenness can sometimes be realized and seen, be understood as beginning from when we came out of the box. I mean, when we entered this world, there was a measure of brokenness and pain that was already at hand with us. That from the get-go, we can look at our lives and realize the pain and the hurt that we have continued to reintroduce into our lives and into the lives of others. And thereby also, because of our sinfulness, there is a desire for rightness. There is a desire for those of us who have had Nathan point the finger at our own person when we've taken a hard look in the mirror and we hear, gosh, yeah, I've made some bad moves in life. There comes with that a desire, a longing, a hope. That somewhere, somehow, things could be set right. David says it like this, Create in me a clean heart, God. Clean out the baggage, the pain, the hurt, the, the things that haunt me and the messiness of my own soul. Clean it out. Clean out my heart, God, and renew, restore Make new, create in me a new heart, a new life, a new person. Renew a loyal spirit within me. The psalm is rich with with David's longing, his hope, and his, his desire that God would do something with him, in him, and through him that, quite frankly, David can't do himself. David realizes that if it's up to him, He's going to continue to struggle with brokenness. And yet he longs for, he hopes for someone or something to make things right. 
He says, God, restore me to the joy of your salvation. Make me willing. Do whatever it is that is necessary inside of me to put me in sync with your will, your laws, your way of living. Renew that spirit, and as you recreate that spirit inside of me, make me willing to obey you and live according to your hopes, your dreams, God, your aspirations, God. You see, for as much as this psalm of David is about brokenness, it is as much about, if not more, David crying out, hoping and desiring for rightness. And just like David, I'm guessing that you too have experienced a moment in life where you desire things to be made right. We look at ourselves, we look at our world, and it's obvious that things just don't seem right so often. And the Christian heart The godly heart is one that rather than wallowing in pain, rather than sitting in the hurt and the grief and the challenge, rather than simply throwing up our hands and giving up, we instead, like David, we begin to desire that things be made right. And like David, we too can turn to God. David, when he is overwhelmed with his grief and his sorrow and his pain, he cleans himself up. And where does he go? What does he do? He goes to worship his God. He turns in his brokenness to the one place that he believes can set things right in his life and in this world. He believes that this God who has been with him from the beginning, that God's character is such that God, based on who God is, can, will, and desires to make things right. He describes God in the psalm as being a God of mercy, a, a God of unfailing love. A God of compassion who sees the things that are disjointed in our lives. And and because of God's character, our God, your God, David believes your God is working to set things right. We believe as a Christian people that is precisely what God has done and is doing most notably in the person of Jesus Christ. That in Jesus, God definitively has chosen to make your life and this world right. That we in and of ourselves don't have the ability. We in and of ourselves can't seem to make the world a better place. We in and of ourselves can't seem to experience joy and hope. We can muster up some happy moments, but not true, real rightness. That's precisely why Jesus Christ came. 
to give His rightness to us. Jesus Christ came into this world for you, for me, for David to extend forgiveness, to begin the work of healing and restoration, to recreate and give us a new heart, a new new spirit by the power of the Holy Spirit that takes up residence inside of us now. We become recreated and made new. And we can begin to experience the joy of salvation like never before. David talks about in this psalm, and he points to that when we come before God, when we turn to God, we will not be rejected. We will not be pushed away. It is not God's character to reject a broken and humble person. But in fact, when we wrestle with our disjointed lack of rightness, those are precisely the people. Those are precisely the people that God adopts as his sons and daughters out of his mercy, love, and compassion. It is precisely broken, hurting people that turn to God, that can begin to experience the work of God, setting things right, right in our lives, and hopefully through us, right in the lives of others. To close, I'd like us to pray together and invite that rightness, invite that spirit, invite that work of Jesus to make us right here and today. Would you please pray with me? Gracious Lord, we do indeed humbly come before you, praying and asking that you would set us right. We acknowledge that we, like David, so often have made mistakes. We have fallen subject to our own brokenness, our own appetites, and our own sinfulness. We're sorry for that. And yet we, like David, cry out. We desire, we long, we hope, and we dream of things being made and set right. And so we humbly turn to you to do that. We, like David, come to worship this morning. We humbly come and worship you, our God. We turn to you and seek and ask, set things right. By the power of your Holy Spirit, by the power of Jesus Christ, extend your forgiveness into our lives today in a way that restores our joy and our salvation. Bring us to a place of knowing and celebrating and and enjoying your character of love and mercy and, and compassion. We believe that you are working and have worked through the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to ensure that there is a right, good future for us, your people, and that you are working to restore and reconcile and recreate the world. Humbly, we both invite it into our lives today and give our thanksgiving that we can turn to you and find it and know it and experience it, being made right by the love of our good God. Just 
like David. We thank you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.